Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Marilyn McLean is a child advocate, a domestic violence expert, and a national speaker. She's the author of Prosecuted But Not Silenced, Courtroom Reform for Sexually Abused Children. She has written extensively for the American Bar Association, the Child Law Review, Women's E-News, Ms. Magazine, and many other publications. She is on the board of very many organizations, but she's also the executive director of MFB, Moms Fight Back. Her personal journey is the one that we'll share today, and it's not a story that will be easy to listen to, but her 30-year journey of advocacy has helped her do legal work, advocacy work, and legislative work that has brought her international recognition. Marilee, thank you for joining me at the Storyteller's Microphone. Thank you, Grace, for having me on, and thank you for that nice introduction. <laughs> well, I think your story is an incredibly important one. Usually at the Storytellers, we talk about novelists. I certainly do nonfiction as well, but your story captivated me for many, many reasons. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into your work Yes. Um, actually, I'm a domestic violence survivor. I was married for about eight years. And when I got pregnant is when the abuse started from the father. Uh, and in those days back then, you got to figure 30 years ago, women didn't really understand domestic violence. I was very much in that uh, stalking, emotional abuse, all, all the red flags that you see today. And I fought for a divorce from the father when my daughter was six months old. I had full custody of her. At the age of about, I went through a lot, a messy divorce, just to get it that way. But since I had so cussy, he had very limited visitation at the age of two and a half. Um, she told her daycare provider, who was the daycare person that was taking care of her in detail, nothing a, a two and a half year old could come up with of details of what was happening to her. Um, she also told me and I, you know, I, I was in shock and I'll never forget this one time that I went to pick her up at her dad's and I dressed her in this really cute little dress and she looked darling. And when I went to pick her up, I knocked at the door and there was no answer. And I thought, well, that's strange. And I knocked again, no answer. He finally comes down the stairs, but he brings her down the stairs covered in sweat, wet, nooning, limp in his arms. And I said, what the heck happened to her? And he said, she's sick. And I said, that's funny. She was fine a few hours ago. And I got her clothes together and got her dress and got her out of her. So that's probably one of the first times, but I didn't even pick up on it because I wasn't around anything like that. I, didn't, I never, you didn't hear about sexual abuse back then. And I, I just, it just wouldn't believe that he would do that. So anyway, as time goes on, more and more information comes out on the abuse. And she's now she's, uh, I, my sister's a nurse at children's hospital. And I asked her, my daughter's displayed more behaviors of what her dad's done to her. And I said, what do I do? She said, Take her to children's, take her to her doctor, her pediatrician in the morning and, and don't mention her father's name and just see what she states and what happens. That's what I would suggest you do. And I did. And pediatrician notified social services. And that's kind of where my nightmare started. And that's where a lot of these cases, the nightmare starts. Um, I am working a full time job dealing with the fact that my little girl is being sexually abused. He's now got supervised visits because social services has been involved. And I go to these supervised visits and I'm taking her to therapy and, and the therapist is telling me, yes, she's being abused. And at this point, I go in one day and um, I take my daughter in and I'm looking through this little window in, in the social service area and watching him with my daughter. He's the perfect father. I kid you not. He's intelligent. He's charismatic. He's charming. He's good looking. 
and I'm thinking to myself, my God, they're not going to believe this man's done this. And I met by the GAL that day. Now, I didn't even know what a GAL was. It's guardian ad litem lawyer for the child. And she meets me with disdain. First time she's ever met me. And she says she has four things she wants to discuss with me. And I'm thinking I can deal with this because I've already been through a lot through all this stuff and trying to protect her. At this point, I thought it'll just go right and I'll just go into this meeting. I was interrogated in that meeting like nothing I'd ever seen on a law and order show. So why would your daughter continue to say this if you weren't coaching her? Because maybe it's going on. And then um, I, I said, well, she, she said, I want you to do a psychological evaluation. I said, good. I said, maybe we'll get to the bottom of this. And she points her finger in my face and she says, and maybe we'll find out about you. And I'm thinking, geez, you know. And then the next thing was, um, I said, well, have you met with a daycare provider who spends all the quality time with my daughter? And she hadn't. And she said, um, this is, oh, she wanted us to do the, the um, separation counseling. I just spent two and a half years trying to get away from this man. You know, I mean, total stalking, abuse, emotional abuse, never leaving me alone, calling me 24 hours a day at, at my work. So this, she says, um, what separation counseling, I'm thinking, my God, it's just been all this time. And I'm thinking it to myself, but it didn't say anything to her. The next thing was parental alienation syndrome. This is parental alienation syndrome. I never heard the term before. I didn't know what she was really talking about, but I said, parental alienation. I said, I've been over backwards. He's in the room too. I've been over backwards for this man to be in her life. I had a great relationship with my own father. And I want her to have a chance to have the same. And, and she, and I said, would you like to hear what she's saying about you? And then, and then she said, this child's going into foster care. She had a foster care home lined up before I even walked in. I'm the sole caretaker. You don't take a child out of the primary resident like that and traumatize them. Like what happened here. I went into another room. I laid my head down on a desk and I cried as if I had died. I just felt like I had my soul ripped out of me. I've never been away from my baby. And, and, um, social work comes up and taps me real coldly on the shoulder and says, you can go say goodbye to your daughter now. And I got up, I couldn't even feel my legs. It was like a, a gray mist around me. I'm walking down this hallway and, and my legs were shaking and they go, look at her, look at her. She can't handle it. She can't say goodbye to her daughter. I said, oh yes, I can. Cause I wanted to make sure my baby, I said goodbye to her. Anyway, they had the police escort me out and I can't even imagine it. You know, I'm driving hundred miles an hour to the doctor's office that just stated my daughter was being sexually abused. So I brought that up to the GAO. I said, have you read Dr. Baker's report? Cause she just told me the day before, yes, your daughter's being sexually abused and has been exposed to sexual stimuli. And, and this GAL says, Dr. Baker does not state any such thing. So I feel like I'm going crazy. So I go to Dr. Baker's office and she says, my God, what happened to you? Because my makeup's thrown all over my face and I'm, I'm a wreck. And she said, um, oh my God. I said, they just took my baby from me. You know the truth. You fight for us. And she said, oh my God, I had an idea they'd do something like this. And I told them, absolutely not. So my daughter's in foster care. And um, during this time, she's she's with the foster care parent, they move her over to the daycare provider who was a foster care parent. And she's displaying more sexual behaviors and she's crying out in the night. No, daddy, don't. Owie, owie, it's bad. Five or six times a night, she's arching her back off the bed and in pain. I witnessed it the previous months. Um, then she says um, that she's in a playhouse in the backyard. She's displaying sexual behaviors with another little boy. She says, you gotta do something with what this child's going through. And they were going to put her in another foster home. She says, you do that to this child, it will kill her. She needs her mommy. They finally put her back in my home, but I'm not allowed to bring up the abuse again. That's what happens in these cases all across the country. That's why I work on this. this I'm not an individual case. It's, there's thousands of them, literally thousands. I get calls every day from women all across the country trying to protect their children with identical cases to mine. They all come down the same and they lose their children. So I go ahead. 
So let's just take a pause here. So our listeners have some clarity around this. You have a young child. She displays and shares that she's been in an abusive situation. You bring that forward. And all of a sudden you are accused of something I had never heard. And I was also a guardian ad litem. Sometimes that person is a lawyer. In the case where I was a guardian ad litem here in Florida, we are just advocates, legally assigned advocates for the child. So as you know very well, it varies state to state in Maryland and Colorado, you have to be a lawyer. In Florida, you are just legally assigned to the courts. But you entered into this for the idea of protecting your child. And that has now put you separated from her and now has put you on a trajectory where yes. you have to prove that you are not doing parental alienation syndrome. And now you're finding all other mothers, uh, many other mothers who are in the same situation. So tell us how the story moves into advocacy and what happens between you and your relationship with Lisa. Okay, her name's Amy. I'm sorry, Julie. But that's okay, it's all right. Um, what really happens is at that point, I, I continue to fight. I lose her, at the, I, I'm testifying before Congress and um, I'm lobbying in Washington, D.C., trying to make a difference. So I'm, I'm lobbying all week long. I'm just flying back and forth from D.C. to here, to Colorado. I've gone to the governor of Colorado. I never, I turned over every rock I could turn over to get her home and to get her safe. I was up against the system and that's what all these mothers are. They're up against a system that chooses to not look at the safety of the child first. I don't, you know, the best interest of the child statute is there for a reason, but the safety of the child comes first. And the best interest of the child statute is the parent that's more able to nurture the relationship with the other parent that gets custody. Obviously a woman trying to protect her child is not going to nurture that relationship. So they're awarding custody to these fathers who are the abusers. And all these women, I mean, it's an epidemic numbers. When I testified for Congress, I testified with 10 other mothers from across the nation. I had no idea. I thought I was the only one going through this. I mean, people ask me, what are you doing wrong? Why is this happening to you? What, what, what's, what are you doing? And they couldn't understand it. And it's very difficult for anybody to understand. But when you see I, all these mothers that testified with me, I, they could have been me speaking. I vowed that day never to stop fighting this issue, and I haven't. So I've, I've, I've done, like you said, I completely went to work every day, working not just for my child, but for all the children across the nation and internationally as well. I just got back October before COVID. I went to speak in England before the court said at the parliament there. And they're actually a little bit ahead of us. But let me explain Richard Gardner and how this theory got going. Richard Gardner um, said, you know, he said he was a Columbia professor, which he wasn't, but he puts this theory out there that's never been tested. So it's not approved by the AMA or the APA, American Psychological Psychiatric Association. And he put his theory out there. And in his own published books, he states, we all have some pedophilia within us, that it makes little girls and little boys better sexual partners, that you need to have more pity for the pedophile than scorn. I mean, did these judges read his book and understand what this man was doing? And he's still, there's still a bunch of group of people out there pushing it, which is really pro-pedophiles, what it is. And he was used in my case. So they actually paid him. The GAL paid him in my case. So that's the direction my case went and as Richard Gardner's theory. So I did a lot of media coverage here in Colorado and I had a lot of media behind me to fight this issue. And I still couldn't get my daughter, but I brought a lot of attention to it. And I had a rally at the Capitol with a woman from New Jersey who's an attorney. Um, she started the National Center for Protective Parents. And she was getting calls from mothers like myself and she thought they were all crazy. And then she saw what was going on. 
And she said, I'll never forget her getting on the Capitol steps. And the whole reason it was bought to, brought to Denver, Colorado, because I was getting so much news media coverage. We were trying to bring news media coverage to these other mothers' cases. So there were senators there. There were congressmen. It was a great grassroots effort rally. And I'll never forget her standing on the Capitol steps. And she said it took them 20 years to listen to domestic violence. And we do not have another 20 years for them to listen to this issue. And it has been way over 20 years. And she said, at first, we start taking a list of mothers. Uh, that we're going through this. Today, we're changing that list and we're taking a list of judges. And the first judge on that list is going to be Judge Michael Beta, who sentenced Marilyn McLean's child to a lifetime of abuse. And this is for you, Julie, and her fist goes in the air. So it's pretty incredible. Great grassroots effort, lots of media coverage. And I have not stopped from there. And there's a lot of us working together now. Um, there's a National Safe Parents Organization. We're trying to work together there with Moms Fight Back. I brought legislation in that. Now, I'm the executive director for Moms Fight Back here in Colorado. And um, I brought legislation in. What, how I did that was I knew a lot of women in Colorado that had lost their children. So we, I pulled those women together and I knew the legislation we needed. We needed the safety of the child to come first. Not the best interest of the child, but the safety of the child first. Domestic violence first, child abuse first, child sexual abuse first. They have to determine all that before. Secondly, transparency and accountability in our courtrooms. We have none. Third, all these people need to be trained in domestic violence and specialized training, not just, uh, you know, they're not trained in it. We have judges here on the Colorado bench that sit for two years. They have no training. They rotate and they're off. And so they have no idea what they're dealing with. So that's pretty much what I work on. So we, I just passed, or my, my group did, and um, other coalitions, we worked together on this. It's HB 21-1228, which was Julie's law in, in honor of my daughter. And it's a great law. It is for the safety of the child. It's for they have a lot of these judges throw out the evidence. So like for instance, in my case, Beta, that judge, I had several judges, but this judge threw out all documents, throughout all police reports, doctor's reports, hospital reports, children's hospital, the top doc, top on um, sexual abuse, sexual ex experts wrote a letter to my judge, please contact us, contact us concerning the sexual abuse of this child. He tossed it. So that's what's happening. They're tossing out evidence. So now it's an evidentiary hearing. They have to look at the evidence, all evidence. And that's the, Now, this is a law that is in Colorado. Is it state by state? Or are there similar laws? Yeah, it's, there are other laws going on right now. So it, I will take this state by state because I want to get it passed in every state. But there's Caden's law. And a lot of these moms, Caden's law, the child was murdered. Um, she had begged for help and the child gets murdered by the father. Cura's law, this is the same thing. The child was murdered. Um, so there are, a lot of these children are being murdered, but it's more, more of them are not being murdered, but they're being sold murdered. They're forced to live with that abuser. So, um, Caden's law went federal this year, um, with, uh, domestic violence, VAWA, but that's, that's for monies and it didn't pass in the state yet. But everybody's pushing to get these laws passed in the state. They're not passed yet. Julie's law Mar is passed. Marilee, I think that your story is every mother's nightmare. And there are, obviously, it's a much broader issue than I was aware of, or even that you were aware of living it. What are some things that women can do very early on? And I, and I want to say that are safe in terms of, of, is there something that you could have somehow avoided some step that, and this isn't a, a you being at fault. This is a, if we had only known not to say this, what are, what are some of the first steps that mothers can do? 
my first thing I always say if I speak at college campuses is that before you marry a guy, you have to know what you're dealing with. These guys are really good. They're narcissists, they're psychopaths, they're sociopaths. They know they go for the nice woman, the one that they can control and manipulate. And I really have seen that cross the board for almost all these cases. These guys don't stop abusing. They don't stop using the courts to abuse the women. And they do the worst thing that could be happening to a mother is to have your child taken from you and live with an abuser. I honestly don't think there's much worse. Um, it's, it's horrific crime. And so I say women, you know, today, I mean, I wasn't aware of domestic violence at all. I mean, came from a really great home background and loving, loving family and never had seen anything like this or dealt with anything like this. And, and these guys, are, a lot of them are really intelligent. So they know how to work the system. So we've got father's rights organizations going where father's rights gets billions of dollars through the government. I mean, there's fathersrights.gov. You can look it up and see the monies that they're getting. There is no mothersrights.gov. These moms are being bankrupted every day. I mean, I was bankrupted. I, I was in court for 10 years. I lost everything I owned. Um, and it doesn't stop. They drain you financially. I was ordered to pay all court costs, the father's attorney's fees, all lawyer fees, anything. And then on top of it, you get gag orders. So these women are getting gag orders. I had a case here in Colorado, um, just to kind of go off a little bit, that the, the mom alleged that the father had abused her daughters, her sexually abused her daughters. And she was in court for like three years and fighting it, $350,000 in legal fees. The attorney drops her case just before they're going in to end her parental rights. He gets scared. They end her parental rights. Can you imagine that? Once you lose your parental rights, you have no rights to that child again. So now she's lost her parental rights. The judge on the case got reprimanded here in Colorado. Her name was Natalie Chase, but they reprimanded her for racial slurs. Believe me, that's not what that woman was being represented, rep, reprimanded for. There was a lot more going on with her cases. And she would not let that mother talk when she had to go pro se because she had no more money. And she put her in jail because she went on the internet and posted something about her case. Put her in jail for 18 months. I mean, this is horrific. I mean, I got gag orders. They wanted to put me in jail. The only reason I never went to jail, and you probably would have never heard of me, because I had CNN behind me. When my daughter was nine years old, 10 years old, after I'd lost her, and I had supervised visits, I got to see her one hour a week in an eight by 10 foot room. And I watched this beautiful child with her long dark hair fall out and those twinkly blue eyes go into a trance-like state. And she would lie on the floor and she'd say, I can't see you. And I said, you can too see me. She goes, no, I can't see you. I want to die. That's where my child was going. And yet I couldn't stop anything. But that's what's happening with all these children. We're just, we, it is a billions of dollar industry. And if we don't listen to the ACE study and we don't listen to these children and believe these children and, and, and go for the safety of the child first versus, you know, because his father looks good because he's educated. You think he's not abusing this child. There's evidence. My daughter, by the time she was four and a half, she had physical evidence from the top doctors in the state of Colorado. And they made her go back to her dad. Can you imagine what a child feels like when they're telling policemen, doctors, social workers, family and friends? My daughter's saying, mommy, how come no one believes me, mommy? Why do I have to go back to my dad? I don't want to go to my dad. He hurts me, mommy. And I think that's that's why I think your story is so important. In my work as a guardian ad litem, uh, it is so important for me to have a voice for children. It is not necessarily a comfortable story for any of us to listen to. Unbelievably, Marilee, we are at the end of our time together today. It goes so quickly. I want to thank you for bringing a focus to something that is 
frequently swept under the rug still, even today. Violence, domestic violence, abuse is really all about an abuse of power. And I want to thank you for your story. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, MarilyeMcLean.com. Uh, that's my website. And also uh, Moms Fight Back. And if you're on Facebook, you can go to Moms Fight Back. And I just did a documentary. It's with Insider Exclusive. And it kind of gives this whole story in a short nutshell. And that'll be coming on TV. But you can see it on my Facebook page under my name, Marilee McLean. Marilee, thank you so much for being Thanks, with us. This has, been, this has been a copyrighted episode of Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network, and Grace Salmon. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Grace. Appreciate it. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.